Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. This episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Everett of Menswear and Six Music. This is a fantastic chat. Again, another jam-packed episode actually coming up for you. Lots about menswear. Matt also talks about his recent podcast, uh, which documents the making of help, which is the War Child uh, charity CD that came out 25 years ago. Anyway, it's a, a fantastic conversation and uh, loads of insights into menswear in the early days. So I'll stop waffling, enjoy the podcast. I'll speak to you at the end. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Everett, how are you? I'm all right. As uh, we said in the preamble to you pressing record, everything's <laughs> fucking mental. Can we swear on this one? Is it a sweary podcast? Uh, I do put the swear icon on there, so it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before, before everything went completely bananas and he's now on the verge of more bananas. But I think we're okay. Our family's all right. We're, we're okay, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, most of my podcast episodes have started with me asking how people's lockdowns were, but we will avoid that on this occasion because <laughs> it's, it's becoming a bit of a, not a tedious question, but it's like, you know, everyone's just wanting to get on with everything now. And the doom and gloom in the world is kind of, it's depressing enough to speak and think about it on a day-to-day basis. Let's be positive about, <laughs> about the things that, that are there to be positive about, I think. Well, you know, it's a good time to look back and you know, feel nostalgic about things I've noticed, you know, whilst being off or in furlough and things like that. And, you know, the podcast was originally me look, going through an old record collection and thinking, God, what are these bands doing now? Knowing more or less full, <laughs> full lightly knowing what they were doing, but just wanted to sort of get more, more meat to the bones, if you like. But menswear, what, I mean, a, a crazy time in 94, uh, I guess, was yeah. the, the creation of menswear. Um, but before that, you know, when did you sort of pick up the sticks and want to drum? I remember being about 11 or 12, about 12 years old, and seeing uh, a video, a Queen video, Queen live, live in Rio, which yeah. is like on sort of crackly VHS, and watching um, Roger Taylor from Queen like playing this colossal drum kit with a timpanis and a gong. And mm-hmm. like in front, in front of an audience of about 250,000 people, I thought, that looks good. I really want to do that. And that was, it was, it was as, as blatant as that. And then, yeah, just started playing when I was about 13. Just loved it. Just really loved making a racket and annoying, annoying the neighbours um, so, in, my, in my family home. Well, how quickly did you make the trans, did you transfer to sort of playing in live bands and being in bands? Uh, I think, let's think, I would have been about 14 or 15 when I sort of started playing in school bands, which were all you know, one degree of rubbish or another. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's where you kind of learn your chops, isn't it? Because you sort of, you know, you, you, you learn to play Beatles songs or Stone songs or Hendrix songs or whatever. And that's kind of how you get, how you learn the building blocks before yeah. you even really find out that there's, um, there's music out there that's yours that doesn't belong to like the older generation, you know, you remember sort of hearing the, yeah. hearing the Smiths or whatever and just thinking, oh, hang on a minute, this, this isn't my parents' music. This isn't, you know someone's older brother or sister music this is this is about this is about me then you have that lovely moment when all of a sudden music becomes personalized and you start wanting to make music that's 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 for you i guess the same situation i was in a band we're learning to play guns and roses and and, and metallica yes. songs and, and every, everything is heavy as possible in a church freezing cold <laughs> and then it's, it's, yeah, it's always in the church or it's always in some sort of school you know room yep. somewhere uh, yeah, it, 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 it's amazing how many, like, you'd think, like, incredibly cool or, uh, you know, on-trend sort of musicians of our generation 
can sort of play sweet child of mine like, <laughs> yeah. no, no perfect because it's it's there yeah it's in their brains from when they first started to play i think well, that, i did a there's going to be loads of name dropping here so do, i do apologize i did this interview with ed o'brien from radiohead and we're talking about those kind of first rehearsals and he was like yeah the first job i had with radiohead was doing the acoustic guitar bit in she sells sanctuary by the cult like <laughs> jing jing he says yeah. that's all i did in the band for, for weeks and weeks and weeks when we first started at school and that's kind of still what I do today. So yeah, everyone's got that, a rock thing or like, yeah, that's, that's kind of where you start, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you, you know, eventually if, you, if you're lucky enough, you start to sort of, you know, write and, and, and those three chords, those famous three chords will get you through <laughs> a lot of breakups. So I've noticed, uh, well, it's always helped yeah. me for a lot of breakups. I mean, the story of menswear is, is different, or could I say, in terms of like maybe what, from, what I've re, from what I've read, and obviously it's all true on the internet, um, I mean, at the time when, when, when you broke, I remember it vividly, uh, you know, you broke and the enemy and, and the melody maker were putting on the cover and we had the top of the pops performance and things. But I wanted to hear from your side of things, how, how the kind of, what was the spark of that band and how, how was it formed? It was, um, it was so quick. My God, it was quick. It was, <laughs> it, it happened quickly and it was over quickly. Um, I had been playing in groups, I'd moved to London in 94 and just been playing in lots of indie bands trying to find a group that was that was really good that worked and uh i had a couple of friends in the camden area that had i used to travel down from where i used to live in birmingham just used to sort of spend weekends with them trawling about camden as kind of people started to talk about clubs like syndromes and uh, pubs like the laurel tree which was like um had a blow-up night which was a big mod sort of uh, modern soul R&B night upstairs in the pub in Camden. And so I used to sort of go there and you could feel this kind of this thing happening. I think the press called it, you know, new mod of new mod or whatever. And you could kind of feel bands, you know, forming and people talking about being groups. And then Modern Life is Rubbish came out, I'd learned, which kind of really set the template for loads of people, myself included. It was like, all oh, right, this is back to what I say. This is a band about us now. It's not an American group singing about alienation it's it's a british group singing about the brighton seafront and i know the brighton seafront i don't know a lot about alienation yet mm. um and then separate to that johnny and chris had met uh and you know johnny's always johnny looked like a front man from the minute i saw him he's always looked like that and chris was just this sort of gangly youth very young 16 i think um and came under the spell of this kind of nascent Britpop thing i guess it was it's sweden Sway's so for first record and, and Modern Life is Rubbish. And they, Chris had just gone around telling everyone uh, that he could, that he was in a band called Menswear. <laughs> and then went out, went to festivals, blagged his way backstage, told everyone he was in a band called Menswear, met people. Uh, they met Stuart, the bass player, who had played, who'd been playing trumpet with Blur a little bit. And they, they just all looked good. They all like had these had the mod suits on and, and the blag. And it was like they decided that after telling people they were in a band, they should probably form one. And um, and that's how they started. They had a drummer who was, by all accounts, a lovely dude, but just didn't really work out. And my friends who I'd been hanging about with in Camden said, "Oh, you know, this is this is group. They're going to get signed. Do you want to do you want to go and meet them?" And I was like, "Yeah, because that's all you ever wanted to do is get signed. That's that's the big deal when you're in struggling groups. It seems like an impossible dream." So, and I went to one rehearsal and wrote, or well, not wrote, they'd written "Daydreamer," so we played that the first rehearsal and um, a couple of other songs, and that was it. And I was like, okay, you're in the group. I had to fire the old manager. I remember that was my kind of baptism. <laughs> was, I had to, they had, uh, the original manager was, wasn't the right man for the job. 
and so they sort of said, look, I think you're really good, but, but you've, got to, you've got to fire him for us. So that was kind of my, I had to, that was my initiation into the group, was firing the rubbish manager. <laughs> and then I you're in the club. Face, yeah, I had to do it to his face in front of the rest of the band. I think he turned up with beer and biscuits at the end of the rehearsal. And it was like, oh, you know, when, you get, when you get pushed to the front of a, you know, there's a thing where there's like, like a row of people and all volunteers step forward and everyone else steps back apart from one person. And that was me. So, most, people, most people would just sign in or, you know, you just sort of uh, have a, a swear an oath or something. But yeah, you had something a bit more meaty to do. Yeah, a, a little bit meaty. But so, that, I mean, that was, that was how we, And then uh, Simon, who'd been a guitarist in bands I knew in Birmingham, bumped into Chris, kind of sought Chris out because he'd seen him in, 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 in music press going on about menswear. Chris and Johnny were in the Pulp Do You Remember the First Time video. So they kind of had a little bit of like a cool scene that they were in. And mm. Simon sought out Chris and just said, basically, I'm the other guitarist in your band. And, I, and over many drinks, Chris was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then played him a bunch of songs. And Chris was like, oh my God, these songs are amazing. You have to be in the band. Turns out there were songs by Ocean Colour Scene that hadn't been released yet. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but you know, then again, by hook or by crook, that's what happens with groups, isn't it? If, if you see something you want to get involved in, yeah, that's how you get involved in it. And yeah, and that was, and that was it. A legend in her own lunchtime. It was, um, and then, yeah, and then, and then it, capital I, capital T, all kind of started. So in terms of writing, was it like a mad, mad scrabble to get a, like a, a enough songs to, to sort of play live with and then to sort of put on down on an album? Because if you only had like three or four songs to start with, isn't that sort of kind of like the seed was there? But how, how quickly did you get like a, you know, enough for a set's worth? We never had enough songs. We, we got, we wrote, we were signed up on the back of five songs, which is ludicrous. Yeah. Those, were the, those were the five first songs we wrote mm. and we got signed to a like three quarters of a million pound record deal which is insane um, and certainly that doesn't happen today and yet then it was like I mean pretty much the first more or less the first six or seven songs we wrote included the first three singles that the band mm. released Mandy Somehow Daydream and Stardust they were all written in the first couple of rehearsals which I've always been kind of proud of because no matter, you know, if, if you think about men's errors or, or have been seen in the past as, as the sort of butt of people's jokes about, you know, all style and no substance, you don't get three top 20 hits with your first three songs you write if you're shit, do you? you know, no, there's got to no. be something happening there. Yeah, so yeah. I, that, was, that was always a source of, um, of pride with me. For me, when I look back at men's wear, it always feels like it was just a, an absolute, the pinnacle of what the sound was, what the fashion was. And it was just like a, a band that just represented everything from all the genre, all that, all, I don't want to say pigeonhole because it's quite a derogatory term because I think that, that kind of is what happened but, um, to most bands. But from every artist I've spoken to and all, all the bands uh, that I've had on the podcast, everyone has always distanced themselves from Britpop or, Brit, <laughs> or from, you know, in, in one way or another. They've not openly come out and said, yeah, we, we were, we, no, we Everybody, were I mean, I mean, it's funny that, isn't it? That's like the first thing that happens in, in any scene is that everyone says they're not part of the scene yeah. as, as has always been thus. Um, I mean, I think if you were pulp and you've been going on, if you'd been around for like 10 years before anyone, paying attention to you, you distance yourself from it, but they, they were kind of, you know, far too cool to even pretend that they should distance themselves from it. And it's kind of the same for Blur. They've been a kind of baggy band before they've been yeah. a mod band. But yeah, but it was, it was, it was more about, I don't know, uh, a style and an attitude and maybe an arrogance and a certain 
a youth and energy that brought everything together. Supergrass didn't sound anything like, you know, Jean and, you know, Super Furry Animals certainly didn't sound anything like menswear, but they were all kind of lumped in together because there was this energy happening, I think, more than any one mm. style, you know? I remember listening to you know, Steve Lamack and, and Joe Wiley on the evening session and just getting so excited. But then every now and again, they would sort of insert some American bands that, you know, was just starting to happen or, and he would think, oh, yes, do I go to the, to the pavement side? I must stay true. I must stay true. Um, that's how it felt like for me. I was kept getting drawn over to the dark side um, with bands like, I don't know, Weezer and, and, and yeah, Pavement and oh, many others that I've forgotten off the top of my head. But it was just such an exciting time. And uh, I, I feel like, you know, it, it, it shaped me, uh, my musical tastes and all the bands uh, that I was in at that time sounded like, you know, carbon copies of, of the stuff that, was, that I was buying off the Melody Maker and the, or, you know, the, yeah. the, the tapes and the CDs that were coming free on Select Magazine. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's like, because it was in many ways um, a kind of a, a, a retrospective scene. There was certainly all the, all the reference points, be that the Small Faces or be that you know, the Beatles, obviously, or be that the Jam uh, or the Kinks. They, they were all kind of there for a lot of those groups, you know, and obviously steeped up in the kind of the Smiths sort of classic indie stuff as well. Mm. Um, but it, it's, it didn't feel retro because it was, it was for us at that moment, you know, we, I wasn't around when Rubber Soul got released, but I but imagine how exciting it was for the Beatles to be putting out a new record. And we kind of felt like that because Oasis were putting out a new record. You know, and it was, it was the first time it felt like for us. And you're right, there was some amazing stuff going on in the States. There was a whole other kind of side of what was happening at that time with Massive Attack and, uh, and Portless Head and all these incredible groups, Ninja Tune and all these people doing brilliant non-guitar stuff. But that all kind of wrapped in together. It kind of felt, that's why, you know, like, weirdly I was, uh, for some reason, looking at the train spotting soundtrack. And it was like, yeah, that was a good indication of what it was like. It wasn't just cast and, you know, and guitars and putting beer all over your head it was it, it was a pretty eclectic scene as well but yeah but you're right it was it did feel vibrant is a slightly cheesy but true word it did feel like you're right everybody you know there's always a new band on top of the pops there was always and you know people people were buying a lot of records you know people were buying a lot of cds so there was kind of there was a quite a buoyant um, music industry because they could afford labels could afford to sign bands and spend money on bands because bands were shifting records even you know not the greatest bands in the world would easily do 30,000, 40,000 albums. And that means you can invest more money in new bands. So there's new bands coming through all the time. So it was, it was a fertile, vibrant time, man. Yeah, definitely. And at the top of the pops thing for you, I mean, that must, looking back at it now, uh, does it still feel completely bizarre that you, you know, you kind of made history in some way in terms of being on that show? I mean, it, this is the thing. I, I, I appear on a radio show with a guy called Sean Keaveney on BBC Six Music. It's one of my things that I do. And uh, Sean used to be in band at the time and never got anywhere. And I love reminding him that I was on top of the pops five times <laughs> just to wind him up. It's really bizarre. I mean, because we, we went on it. The, they bought a new set. The guy, uh, Chris Cowie was the new, was the producer brought on board at Top of the Pops to kind of re revamp the whole thing. And so the, um, he, they, I think the BBC spent like a million quid on this new Top of the Pops studio set. And they didn't have a band to test it out. So one of our radio TV guys at the record label, William McLeod, I think his name was, good guy, uh, sort of said, oh, Mentor will do it. They'll go and you can spend a day working out where the cameras are going to go and they'll play on all the four stages and they'll look great. And we did that. And obviously they never went out, but it was, it was a day where the 
producers and the camera people could kind of work out how the new set was going to look. And we had a whale at the time. And they really liked the fact that we were just throwing ourselves into it and throwing ourselves all over the place. <laughs> and so when the buzz kind of built around, around the band more and we knew there was a single out, they said, yeah, come on. I remember, I remember being, well, I could be on top of the pops. I remember going and having a smoke with uh, Jamaraquai in the Blue Peter Garden. <laughs> which used to be next up on the pops. I remember that. I remember me and Chris from Enzware running about the uh, East Enders set which was also near it, uh, and stealing a, um, a fake bottle of milk from an EastEnders milk float. Remember that? I remember Lionel Richie coming around to, the studio, uh, to our dressing room and being incredibly polite. As well, yeah, we were like acting like arrogant little twats and having a, a, a feud with cast at the time, I believe, and chucking bits of food into each other's dressing rooms. Um, and then Lionel Richie sort of emerges, like bringing benevolence and peace and warmth to everyone by saying, how great your band is. You're oh, so good to meet you. It was like, oh, yeah. that's how you do it. Yeah, he has, anyway, a, he has yeah. that way, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was it's a lovely thing. It's a great thing to have. And I like the fact they're all up on YouTube. You can kind of watch them. Mm. It's kind of funny. We did, um, we did a Stardust was one of our tracks. And we, we had this plan to, in fact, we did finish the song and smash up all the equipment on stage. It's a bit of a rock and roll cliche. But we thought, well, the song is a bit of a rock and roll cliche. So we'll smash all our gear up. Way, you know, rock and roll, <laughs> spontaneous destruction of stuff yeah fuck the system um but the cameramen when they filmed it didn't get the cameras in the right place because they didn't know it was happening so it wasn't filmed properly so they said can you go back and do it again <laughs> we were like, oh okay so all right. and we said yeah all right fine so we did a second spontaneous smashing up of equipment still doesn't look very good on the tv it doesn't look like the who blowing up their drum kit it just looks like a bunch of idiots pushing amps over but yeah it's a fun it was a fun thing i'm very lucky to have done it it was great fun your podcast series celebrates the fact that that, that help albums 25 years old uh, the war child yeah. it, that 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 album itself as well i just remember kind of also encapsulates the era in terms of the artists the varied artists on it the, the coming together of new and old artists to form this what is now still a night you know an iconic record um yeah. how, how did the the podcast series come about for you well i've, I've um i uh, run a production company with uh, my co-director Graham called Cup and Nuzzle. So we, we make a lot of podcasts, we make a lot of video and audio shows for people, including quite a few for musicians. And um, I know the people at Warchild a lot and they're just great. They're lovely, lovely people, as you would expect for a charity that does such incredible work. And like about a year ago, we started talking about, they were like, oh, you know, will you help out? I was like, yeah, sure, well, you know, we'll, we'll make you a podcast. And all this talk about sort of funding from different people. And we had these big ideas about a documentary and stuff. And of course, it all went completely tits up. And hmm. it's not that I forgot about it. It was like, well, we can't, we can't do this, or this massive idea. We can't speak to you know, all the new war child artists and the old ones and do this massive sort of multi-part epic about the story of all war child's music. And then one of the people at war child, a lovely guy called Jim Benno, who I've known for years from when I used to work at XFM, phoned me up about... <laughs> about three weeks before the podcast started, said, Matt, is there any chance we can make something happen with the podcast? It was like, um, in three weeks? Can we, get, can we get people to do it? And I said yes, because they're great. And then, and then just, just called people. Called like, you know, Ed O'Brien and Paul Weller and James Dean Bradfield and uh, Salad and all these people. And most of them, all the ones, yeah, everyone said yes, that possibly could do it. Mm. And, you know, Nana Cherry was in, uh, in a forest in the middle of Sweden, but still recorded a little message for us on her phone and emailed it to us. So, 
Yeah, I mean, that was a lovely thing. To, it's a mad story, that, isn't it? It's, it's an insane thing to have done. When you know the story behind it, it's just mad. Yeah, well, they really did. I mean, you obviously know a lot more than I do, but I, I, I remember it being one of those things that was recorded within sort of two to three days, or was it less than that, and then put out mixed within a week or something, and then... Yeah, it was, they did the whole thing in what They recorded the whole thing in one day. One day, right. And, and, and everyone had to bring something, uh, like something that had never been released before in that yeah. version so they couldn't just like do an old song again it had to be like a, like a new version or a live version or a remix or a brand new track and then brian eno mastered it and mixed it in like eight hours or something and then they had to get it pressed physically pressed get the, the get the tapes to, to pressing plants all around europe enough pressing plants to get it pressed up and then put onto cd and then shipped back and then the artwork done and everything and it was done yet it was recorded on a monday and it, and it was in shops on friday night saturday morning Without the track listing, which without is, the track listing, because there was remember. no time to do it. Yeah, <laughs> because they didn't know what was going to be on it or what was going to make it in time. So yeah, yeah, um, I remember that because yeah. I remember buying it on cassettes. I've still got the cassettes, and then nice. having to cut out the. Uh, it was either it was it enemy or melody. I think all the the news. All of them, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they put the, the inlay in there, which is brilliant. Yeah, it's it's um yeah. If if you feel like the world is completely going to shit and you want to do something good, go to the War Child website and just see how you can get involved. Even if it's just a donation or a little bit of help. They're great people. You left menswear and then how quickly did you decide to sort of go into the radio world or did you just fall into that? I was, it was after, menswear ending was really tough. It was mm. really, really, I mean, it was a pretty dark time anyway for lots of people. I think that was kind of reflected a lot in the music. Mm. You know, if you look, if you listen to, Summer 13 by Blur, you listen to uh, This Is Hardcore by Pulp, especially. You know, there's, there's, there's a point when the going out can get a bit much. Mm. And there's a point when you've spent, you know, all this time striving to get somewhere and then you get there and it's not quite what you expect. Mm. Or the, you know, the adulation and the attention and everything don't necessarily make you feel very happy, I guess. Mm. And obviously with other bands much more than us. So it was, it was a pretty tough time anyway. And, you know, menswear imploded in many ways i got i got booted out we did a bunch of work on the second record then i got booted out of the band because that's what happens to drummers and yeah then just sort of floated about for a bit you know and joined another band called montrose avenue yes who were uh who were a good really good band really good band and so sort of did it again travel the world again with less success than men's were critically um financially and in terms of profile, but I really enjoyed being with them. It was good to be in a band that was just just about music, rather mm. than you know the, all the stuff that goes along with menswear and the lunacy and the idiocy. And then that went tits up again, as happens with bands that don't sell very many records. And then yeah, just started. I became a music journal first in the days when you could do print journalism. And also, it was the dot com boom. So we're talking about two thousand and one. Yeah, and there was a point when you will remember the dot com boom when like it all thousands of websites were launching with millions of pounds investment all the time, and so that was a really good time to be a music journalist because there'd be people that would pay you five hundred quid to do like nine album reviews. You'd be like, great, this is brilliant. Mm. <laughs> so there was quite a bit of that. So that, and then from that, I joined, uh, kind of fell into uh, XFM radio station, which is now Radio X in London. Six Music came shortly afterwards, I guess, and then it's, that's where you are now, uh, doing the yeah. breakfast show for Sean and yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's been it's been a strange route, I guess, but I've never really planned any of it. I didn't really <laughs> want to become a radio person; I just kind of became a radio person. But yeah, but there's, yeah, there was that bit. I think a lot of people had it when it's like, 
and I, I maybe you've you've found this with the people that you've spoken to either you kind of stick to your guns and you kind of keep on making music and playing and touring or you kind of have to rethink what what you do mm. you know so I, uh, for the help podcast we i spoke to size from the boo radley's who's now like um music therapist and does lots of uh, lots of amazing uh work with people kind of using music but also kind of as a psychoanalyst and it's like oh that's a completely different thing to obviously what he did in the blue radius but you know it, it i don't know it's life's interesting like that isn't it sometimes yeah so many of your teen years wanted to be in a band and it doesn't always work out the way you want it to we've just done this this menswear 25th anniversary box set which has been like a really interesting project to kind of do we just sort of did the whole um came out last week and so there's, yeah, there's, there's the album, there's the great lost second album that never got released and a collection of B-sides and rarities and stuff. It's been really nice to kind of do that box set again. One, because it's meant that the band have all started talking to each other again, which has been lovely because there's sufficient time has passed to view it fondly rather than view it as being this, you know, slightly emotionally distressing thing yeah. in places. And also it's something to show the kids, you know, it's like, here you go. You know, as you say, like, this is what daddy did a long yeah. time ago. No, you didn't. You're shit. Yeah, right, fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 nice. I don't. I, and as you say, if you still play, you still do stuff. You know, I, I'm I've been known to get behind the drums for like friends' weddings or just the old little charity thing or that. And I still love it. I still love doing it. It's never gone anywhere. You know, mm. it's um it's still there as a joy. It just takes a while to shift your mind to like thinking that it's not going to be. You're not going to be Roger Taylor playing it playing in Rio de Janeiro in front of 250,000 people. That's not going to happen. No, but you close your eyes and you can just imagine it and uh, it's almost as good. <laughs> exactly. I, I interviewed Roger Taylor a couple of weeks ago, which was a bit nuts. And a little part of me was like, my God, I mean, it might not be him, but you've got a job that means you can interview him. So that's all right. You know. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's almost kind of like massaging another little part of you that just, you know, you're nearly there, but you, at least you're speaking to some of the, some of your idols. It's a bit like me speaking to you and all the other people in my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not Roger Taylor. Uh, he's got such a nice house, but it's it's taken a long time to be proud of menswear. Mm. You know, it's it, because for me, obviously, one being sort of kicked out, dents your ego pretty hard, and also for, you know, for a while it was we were the kind of butt of the by the people's jokes you know it all uh, happened so quickly and it did i mean it as, as we say the whole thing happened in about four or five months we were on top of the pops and, and the whole thing was done in about a year and a half it was over you know but it, in between that there was you know various japanese tours american tours traveling the world all the lunacy you know bodyguards uh hit singles venues festivals gastrobies all the stuff you could possibly want to happen happened in that very short period now rather than looking back and kind of resenting why we didn't turn into Radiohead or being really angry that it didn't work long term. You look back at it and go, that was just the most amazing moment. That was exactly the right record to make at that moment. We, we represented something to people. We represented that moment in their lives. And I love that now. I'm really, really happy about it. It's a lovely thing to have done. You know, you can only see on social media now the amount of love there is for just that whole era of music and how much it means to people and you know things like you know Tim's Twitter parties and the listening parties yeah. that he does just the reigniting that kind of that, that tactileness of, of as well as, as connecting with the artists of, from that era uh, being able to talk about the tracks and just you know go through it again it's, got, it's just the, like I said the, at the beginning of the podcast the nostalgia thing is it's just worth its weight in gold, really. It's just yeah, I, th I think the, the the older you get, and I I, I, I don't really like the nostalgia word because I, I don't really feel that there's anything. Nostalgia seems sort of tainted with like 
a slight sneer, doesn't it? But it, it shouldn't be. It's like I think the mm. older that you get, the more the more you understand who you are and who you want to be and what you want to aspire to and the things that are important in your life and you know the good you might want to do and all that you get to understand more about that by looking at, at, at the things that made you who you are you know mm-hmm. and that involves looking at your past and thinking about your past and, and sort of parenthood obviously does that as well to a huge amount you kind of it's not a bad thing to put yourself in your own context there's like that lovely you know look at sort of david bowie's last couple of records um, he was a man who'd been like, you know, running away from himself since, since he started making music, always reinventing and doing new and doing incredible stuff he'd never done before and changing character, changing look, changing image, changing musicians, changing producers constantly. And that's one of the things that made him so brilliant. But towards the end, those last two records he did, both produced by Tony Visconti, who done his, you know, Ziggy stuff mm. and, you know, using uh, sounds and tropes and structures and imagery that look back to other parts of his career and they're brilliant records mm. it's like it, as bowie was right about everything as he normally was you know sometimes looking back isn't a bad thing it, it gives you a context for who you are and a better understanding for who you are and making stuff that references yourself is no bad thing because it's you you're allowed to do that so you know being nostalgic about stuff you used to love is fine you should there's there's no there's no embarrassment with still loving the stuff that you did back then because it's part of who you are you know mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very philosophical, well, wasn't it? Oh, well, yeah. What a great way to end the podcast, Matt, on a philosophical <laughs> note. It's better than I could have done, to be honest. Well, Matt, it's been a privilege uh, to speak to you. And thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Oh, it's all right. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's, it's nice. It's nice to have a very good interviewer. Oh, thank it's you. Lovely to, <laughs> it's lovely to chat. Thanks ever so much. Pleasure, uh, mate. Nice yeah. one. Thanks to Matt again for joining me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to talk about menswear and uh, all the other stuff that Matt's been involved with over the years. Thanks again for all your support. It's really appreciated. As I've mentioned on a previous podcast, if you want to support financially, I don't have a Patreon page, but I do have a page called Ko-Fi, which is in the show notes or the link to it. Or the link to it's in the show notes. It's three pounds and it's like a one-off payment. You can It's like buy me a coffee type thing. And do that if you want to. The other way that really helps is to write a review and rate on Apple iTunes because it just helps boost the profile or any other platform that you're listening on. Uh, just rate, review and share as best you can. It just helps in the long run. You can follow me on the socials. Just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So that's the self-promotion and begging part of the podcast over. Well done if you've made it this far. Um, But yeah, join me next week and hopefully I'll have another fantastic guest. Take care. Bye.